So we are continuing our studies in the five solas. The word sola, you know, means, uh, it's a Latin term meaning only or alone. I mentioned this on our first time, our first uh, service on this series, that R.C. Sproul rightly said, it is no exaggeration to say that the eye of the Reformation tornado was this one little word, sola, alone. So far we looked at sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scriptures are the only inspired, breathe out word from God, and therefore it's authoritative, therefore it's infallible and sufficient for the people of God. And sola scriptura is the formal principle of the Reformation and the foundation of all theology. If you remember, these solas came from the Reformation. They came out of um, Martin Luther who nailed his 95 theses sparking the Reformation. These, these five solas came from that, sola scriptura, because they were fighting against what, what, what the church held as scripture alone and traditions of the church. And they said, no, scripture alone has the final authority. Then he said, sola gratia, meaning grace alone. God has chosen and he acted to save us by his sovereign grace alone. We as sinners bring nothing to the table. Sinners have no claim upon God. God owes us nothing but punishment that is due us for our sins. And he forgives us and he saves us purely by grace. Unmerited, unearned favor of God and no other reason. Sola gratia. Sola fide, last week. Faith alone. The Reformations reclaim the truth of the scripture of the gospel that we are justified by faith alone. They affirm that the righteousness of the sinner is not his own works, but the work of Christ himself, which was imputed or counted to him. As Christ's righteousness is considered our own, it covers us. It is not as the church taught in that day, infused in you as you participate with God. In the sacraments. We said last week too that yes it is true that there are the works of righteousness. There is the pursuit of holiness. There is the, the transforming work of the gospel. That, that takes place in the life of a genuine believer. And there are evidence of life in you. They are not part of justification. They are the evidence of justification. John Calvin got it right when he said. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Today we come to the substance, really the heart of the matter. And that is solas Christas. Solas Christas. It is central. The work of Christ alone, solas Christas, is central to the foundation of the Protestant faith. Luther said that Jesus Christ is the center and circumference of the Bible, meaning that who he is and what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection is foundational content, a fundamental content of Scripture. John Calvin said this, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look, he says, to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. And as we get into this idea of solus Christus, Christ alone, it's important to understand what the point of contention was between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not here to bash Roman Catholic people. If you come from that background, so did I. There are brothers and sisters in different denominations, including the Catholic Church, that I would consider my brother and sister in Christ. We're talking about the, the, the teaching that's coming from the church. The, 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 the contention between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church 
was not a rejection of the person of Christ per se. They both, the Reformers and the Catholic Church, confirmed the Nicene Creed that talked about the Trinitarian nature of God or, or the Council of Chalcedon, where Christology and the na- dual natures of Christ was debated and agreed upon. The Reformers and the Catholic Church, that wasn't the main issue. The problem was... Not the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. The sufficiency of the work. The efficaciousness of the work on the cross. And the debate centered on the sacramental system that the Roman church had constructed. A system in which grace was mediated. The grace of Christ was mediated to the people through an elaborate system of priest and sacramental works. Through the sacramental system, the Roman church controlled believers through Infant baptism, through penance, through sacraments, even to death, even after death, in punishment as they were sent to purgatory, being punished for their sins. They were purged in purgatory, and they had control of that. If you remember, let me just quickly remind you that Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the Wittenberg Church castle door on October 31st, 1517, was because of the sale of indulgences and really the expansion of the sale of these indulgences. Indulgences were certificates that you would pay for and receive by the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, the, 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 the successor of Peter, from the treasury of merit. So the Pope had access to this treasury of merit that was in heaven, and this treasury of merit, this, this place where all the merit of Christ was, Mary, um, the saints, some of the martyrs, they had enough merit not only to get into heaven, the martyrs and Mary and, and, and uh, uh, others, they had extra merit. So they had enough merit, they get to heaven, there's some extra, it goes into this treasury of merit. And the Pope was giving out indulgences which you can buy merit from him, and it would give you time out of purgatory for sins you've committed, sins that you're going to commit, which is pretty cool. You can say, listen, next week I'm going to hit a bank. And, and if you could just give me an indulgence, I could do it in advance. I know I'm good. And expand it to where you can buy indulgences to help your grandmother that you love so much get out of purgatory a couple of hundred thousand years early. And they use these indulgences to control. They use these indulgences to pay for that actually went to the basilica in Rome. So if the cross of Christ, so let's just does Christ alone, if the cross of Christ and his substitutionary atonement was completely sufficient for all your sins, both the penalty of your sin and the punishment of your sins, if, if Christ is sufficient, the entire system of the Roman Catholic Church comes crumbling down. It's a very big deal. If justification, the act of God, whereby he declares believing sinners righteous, forgiven, in a right relationship with God, is based solely on the perfect life, the perfect work, the finished work of the cross, if that is the case, then there is no merit, no part of man, no merit of the saints or anyone else, either here or in purgatory, that can change that. To add to that is what Paul calls in Galatia a perversion of the gospel, no gospel at all. Let, let, let's look at Galatians chapter 1 for a moment. Christ alone. We'll get to the verses. I don't want to cover that. So Galatians. Paul says to the Galatian church, I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace, unearned, unfavored merit of Christ, called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, the grace of God, the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul puts himself in this category, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, I say it again, if anyone preached to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. If you're distorting the gospel that I preach to you, Anyone comes that distorts the gospel I preach to you, let him be anathema. You say, well, what gospel did Paul preach? You can look in Galatians and get a kind of an idea of that. But you know, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is in the cities of Galatia. And we have a sermon that he preached there. And in the sermon of Acts chapter 13, it is absolutely scripture saturated and very pointed. Chapter 13 of Acts. Of this man's offspring, he's talking about King David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The entire Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, his sinless life, they asked Pilate to have him executed. He died. And when they carried him out, all that, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the cross, from the tree, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Then he goes on to say this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed. That's our word justification. Believe is freed, ESV says freed. I think NIV has justification. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. So Paul says, listen, it's the law of Moses that will show you that you are guilty of your sin. And it is Christ who sets you free, who justifies you. You got his promise of Israel, no guilt, executed, all what the scriptures say, laid in the tomb, risen from the dead, forgiveness of sins proclaimed in his name, freed from that which the law could not do, all in that message. Sounds like justification by faith alone, apart from works to me. And therefore, Paul says to the church of Galatia, and says, listen, any attempt to add to the work of Christ is a perversion of the gospel. In fact, it is no gospel at all. Now, there are a lot of ways we can attack solas Christas. I want to look at it through three lenses, and one of them is going to be mostly contextual or historical. The mediation of Christ, the substitution of Christ, and the exclusivity of Christ. Mediation, substitution, exclusivity. Now, little history lesson. If you don't like history, I'll wake you in about five minutes. <coughs> Martin Luther, I said this earlier too, I'm going to say it again. We don't worship Martin Luther here. We're not a Lutheran church. Not that they do either, but Martin Luther had some things about his life that were not good. I don't have things about my life that aren't good either, so we're all in the same boat. But Martin Luther, God used to spark the reclaiming of the gospel. 
He was born on November 10th, 1483. His father's name was Hans, and his mother's name was Margaretha in Eiselberg, Germany. The day after he was born, Martin Luther was baptized. He was baptized in the Catholic Church on the feast of St. Martin of Tours. Martin Luther baptized Martin. Martin's father, Hans, was, uh, he owned a copper mine in nearby Mansfield. Having risen from the pe- uh, peasantry, his father was determined, like many of the dads here today, want to do something better and more for their children. And he wanted his son to bring honor to his family and serve in, in a uh, civil manner and become a lawyer. So he sends Martin Luther out to a school in Magdeburg and in Eisnach, Germany. When Martin Luther was 17 in 1501, he entered the University of Erfurt, Germany, where he received a bachelor's degree in a year. One year. Didn't have much time to play, I'm sure. In 1502, he received his bachelor's degree, and then three years later, in 1505, he gets his master's degree. And according to his father's wishes, everything his father wanted, Martin Luther then enrolled in Erfurt and went to law school and become a lawyer. One night, though, while he was in law school, one night on his way to the school, a rainstorm and a lightning storm had struck. And Martin Luther, on his way to the school, was terrified of the lightning. And a lightning bolt came next to Luther, somewhere near Luther. And Martin Luther hit the ground, terrified, and he screams out, Help me, St. Anne. I'll be a monk. Get me through this and I'll be a monk, right? And after he lived through that storm, he got up and he actually kept his promise. He dropped out of law school and went to the monastery to become a monk. Now, you may ask, why St. Anne? Well, St. Anne was the patron saint of the miners. And his father owned the copper mine. So that was the patron saint of his family that he called out. Dr. Matthew Barrett, he did a, a five-book series, he was the editor of the five-book series on the five solas, points out to us on why this is so, not only important, but why, why did he do that? I mean, you have someone who is in law school, totally drop out because the lightning bolt struck, and he's crying out to St. Anne. How does that make sense? What is that all about? And he explains that in Martin Luther's days, there was a barrage of saints They had their saints, they had their shrines to the saints. And in the shrines that were built to the saints, there was what was called relics. The relics were pieces of of things that were um, uh, different preserved religious artifacts. Uh, There was one, like I think in Rome, that had pieces of the wood of, of, of the cross. They said it was a piece of wood that came off the cross of Christ. Of course, there's enough wood to have 3,500 crosses. But everyone had a piece of the cross. There was pieces from Mary, there was pieces from these saints, from John, you know, different relics. And these relics were supposed to be what is called venerated, respected, but because we're a bunch of sinful, wicked people and love to worship idols, they became places of worship. These relics, these, these um, shrines became a place of worship. And God the Father was considered the God who wielded thunder. He was a, he was a God who had thunder in his hand. He, he's the one that threw the thunder. So as a sinner, you, you know, you won't really want to go to God who is the wielder of thunder. You would want to go through his son. The Lord Jesus seemed a little bit better, but the Roman Catholic Church were promoting uh, Jesus being the judge. And he is the judge, but not really uh, very much loving savior. So what they would do is they would have pictures of Jesus and he's this with the sword in his mouth and Jesus was this judge and he wasn't really happy with you because of your sin. 
Yeah, he reminds me of the crucifix. You know, look what you did. You're wicked. He's coming to judge. So they're like, oh, man. I mean, Luther was, was frightened. So what do you do? You don't want to go to God of thunder. You don't want to go to the son who's mad at you. What do you do? You go to his mom. Mom could soften up their sons. Next thing you know, they are praying to Mary. Oh, queen of heaven, they called her. But there became another problem. As she was being the mediator, she began to get this queen of heaven mentality, this, this idea of her next to her son, and people were afraid to go to even her. So I can't go to God the Father, he's the wielder of thunder, the son, he's the judge, the mother Mary, is, uh, mother Mary, queen of heaven, she is holy as well. What do I do now? I'll go to Mary's mom, St. Anne. See how it goes. Now you know why. Luther cried out, St. Anne, help me. Talk to your mother. Your mother could talk to Jesus. Jesus could talk to the Father and get me through this lightning storm. Well, he gets up and he goes to the monastery. He becomes a monk and a very religious monk, praying regularly, confessing sin regularly, doing more than any monkery could possibly do. And they would pray. They would pray regularly. I think seven times a day, the monks would go off to the side and pray. And this was their prayer. Save, O queen, though mo- thou mother of mercy, our life, our delight, and our hope. To thee do we cry. Poor banished children of Eve, to thee do we sigh. Mourning and weeping in the valley of tears. Turn to thee, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O holy mother of God. And we know this one too. All hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. You know that prayer. I know it. Some of you never heard of it before. Then in 1507, Martin Luther was given his first mass. 1507, he gave him his first mass in Erford. And his father came out with some folks. It was a proud moment of dad. And Luther was given the idea, the, the, the task of doing a mask. And, and, you know, at the church of Erfurt, there was a slab right before the altar. And that slab was a picture, a, a picture of Christ in his second coming with the sword in his mouth. He had to prostrate himself before that and see the judge. And see the judge. Very common Around the, around the different churches had this picture of Christ with the sword coming out of his mouth as judge. And the image haunted Luther. It terrified Luther. And now he's a monk and he's given his first mass and he has to bow down, prostrate, see the image and then stand up and while doing the mass at the altar, he would lift up the bread and the wine at the altar and, and as he's reciting the introduction, he comes to these words. <coughs> We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal, holy God. And his knees start to buckle. He could barely stand. He's shaking. He was terrified. He was overwhelmed with fear and trembling. Looking back on that occasion, Luther writes this. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? 
seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence even of an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little figme, say, I want this, I ask for that, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I'm speaking to the living, the eternal, and the true God, end quote. You see why he was so terrified? He, he thought in and of himself, how can I ever, oh, go into the very presence of a holy, righteous judge? And here he was being a priest, a mediator for the people to give to them divine grace through the sacraments, through the Eucharist, and he was terrified. Now understand, understand that the altar had the bread and the cup, and, and, the, and the Roman Catholic Church teaches that this bread and the cup actually turns into the physical body and the blood of Christ. So as, as the, as the uh, ministering priest consecrates the elements... An actual physical, metaphysical change takes place. The bread retains the outer look of it, but the, but the, but the actual substance, invisible substance, becomes the body of Christ, the literal body of Christ. And, and the blood, excuse me, and the cup of wine turns into the literal blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. And therefore, when you partake of the Eucharist, you are eating the actual flesh of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. This is what the catechism writes. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents making present the sacrifice of the cross. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. Can you imagine? I've got the physical body of Jesus in my hands and it freaked him out he was terrified you would when you when you went to mass in those days you got the bread you didn't dare go near the cup just in case you were clumsy and you spilt the actual blood of Jesus on that dirty floor the priest would declare this is my body the church bells would ring and the priest would rise up and the bread was only thing that was given Martha Luther Martin Luther had bought into this belief system how could he, who was so plagued with his sin, touch the actual body of Jesus Christ, the judge? Martin Luther realized that no matter what he did, he could never, ever satisfy God. He could never, ever appease God. He could never have assurance of his salvation. Martin Luther was right in some ways, like us, that we are all sinners deserving death and condemnation, but he was wrong at that time, thinking that he needed the mass or, or some other person's merit, some other means of mediation than Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. In fact, Martin Luther turned to Galatians 3.28, which says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Context, salvation. Not gender roles, right? Salvation. We are all one body, one family. And Luther said this about that verse. There is neither priest, nor layman, nor canon, nor vicar, 
nor rich or poor, nor Benedictine or Carthusian or Friar Minor or Augustinian. They're all monks, a place of where, where the monks gather. For it is not a question of this or that status, degree, or order. He says, since Christ is a priest and we his brethren, all Christians have the power and must fulfill the commandments of preaching to come before God with our intercessions for one another to sacrifice ourselves to God, end quote. You see, a mediator is one who mediates, who, who comes in between two people, comes in between uh, two alienated people. They're, they're, there's odds at one another. And Luther's right. The scripture's clear. God is holy. God is just. God is perfect. In God, there is no sin. There's no evil. There's no darkness at all. So the question becomes, who then can go to God as our mediator? Who can plead our case before God and receive, give to us and receive to us what we so desperately need? Grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin. Who can guarantee me that the merits of Christ, the work of Christ, the sufficiency of the cross of Christ is credited to me, imputed to me, to my account, and that my sin goes to them? There's only one. There's only one. There's only one mediator, Timothy, is told by Paul. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 7, 24. Jesus holds his priesthood, how long? Permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus alone mediates the redemptive blessings to us. He alone forgives and justifies. He alone is our advocate, solas Christas. But how can that be? Let's press in. How can Jesus give to us sinners forgiveness? How can he give to us his righteousness? How does that happen? One word, substitution. It's the heart of the gospel. And I want us to see three things that Christ as our mediator has done for us through his virgin birth, his atoning death, his perfect life, resurrection from the grave. And the first thing is, when Christ died as our substitute on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal means that there is a penalty for sin. We read very early on in, Galatians, excuse me, in Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve, what not to do, right? If you sin, if you disobey, you will die. That's the penalty. The penalty for sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death and separation when it is full-blown. When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he dies as a payment to pay our sin penalty, the debt owed to God for our sin. Again, Luther writes this. Since all of us, born in sin, and God's enemies have earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell. So that everything we are and can do is damned. And there is no help or way of getting out of this predicament. Therefore, another man had to step in our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man. And had to render satisfaction and make payment for sin through his suffering and death, end quote. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, the four gospels account of Jesus... You read in Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And in, John, in Matthew 6, Jesus speaks about forgiveness, and he uses the imagery of a debt. 
He uses the imagery of a debt to describe the nature of sin. Because when you sin, when someone sins against you, there is an undeniable, unavoidable reality that the wrongdoer owes you. There's a debt. We speak about paying a debt to society. We talk about you know, criminals and, and paying their debt as they do their time in prison. There's a wrong that has incurred. There's, a, there's an obligation. There's a liability. There's a debt. Anyone who's ever been really wrong knows the obligation to what a debt is all about. And if we don't forgive, if we don't forgive, and maybe you're here this morning and there's someone that you have not forgiven, that debt is still owed. And you get your payment through anger, you get your payment through wanting something to happen to that person. You may get your payment through speaking evil against that person behind their back, hoping and watching something happens. Either you forgive, which is always substitutionary, it always costs. You take the debt on yourself or you see to it that they suffer because that debt needs to be paid. And when you feel like that's been enough, the debt is paid. This happens monetary. I was talking about this in the first service. And I was corrected. The Jets aren't playing today, if anyone wants to know. Jets aren't playing. Because I said, if you come to my house and watch the Jets lose again tonight, you're like, well, they're not on TV. All right, so if you come to my house next week and watch the Jets lose again, I'm a Jet fan, and you get so mad that you take the football and you smash my TV, you owe me. It costs me $400. You either give me the $400, or I... Forgive you, and I pay the $400, but a debt will be paid. Or I'll go without television. I'm still suffering. (laughs) To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays the debt. Forgiveness is always extremely costly. It is emotionally expensive. So what debt do we owe to God for our sin? We are guilty for what we have done and for what we have left undone. The sins of omission as well as commission. Our debt includes secret sins as well as public ones, deliberate sins as well as sins in ignorance. And when all our sins have been added up together, they place us in an eternal debt before God. Listen to the words of Paul here on the screen, Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty of sin that owed to him. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus taught in Matthew also, Father, hallowed be thy name. And then what did he say? Forgive us of our debts. That's the same word. I know some places trespasses, but the word is debt. Forgive us of our debt. What are we saying? We're saying there is, a, there is a debt that I owe to you. Forgive me of that debt. You're freely admitting your moral poverty and you're, and you're saying, Lord, come and forgive me. And God doesn't say, all right, let's get the ledger out. What did you do? You helped the little lady, okay. Um, you gave something to your neighbor, that's okay. Let, let, let's go. There's no ledger involved. God in grace and mercy and love forgives us of all our sins. We ask him outright, and he is our loving father. God does what we ask, and all our sin debt that weighs us down is forgiven. But how can Jesus forgive us 
of our sin? How does he get to pay the penalty and the sin debt for our sins? How can he alone do that and not anyone else? Because Christ alone lived a perfect life and therefore his death on the cross made, listen, satisfaction for our sin debt. He alone can die for sin because he alone lived the perfect life and in turn, he alone took the wrath against our sin on himself. The sin wrath that we deserve and earned. And you know what the scripture calls that? The word used in the scripture is that our substitution, as our substitution, he died as our propitiation. It's a $5 word, but very important word. It's In a few places in scripture, here's one of them, Romans 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared, forgiven, and given the righteousness of Christ. How? By his grace as a gift through the redemption, the buying back that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put that's Jesus, whom God put forward, that's Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood. There was death, there was bloodshed to be received, how? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over, there was a time in which he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness now at this present time so that what? God may be the just And the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5. We were still, while we're still dead, or still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners. We just sang that. Christ died for us since, therefore, we have been justified... By his blood, much more shall we be saved, what? By him through or from the wrath of God. It is through the blood of Christ. It is through the propitiation uh, sacrifice of Christ that we are saved from the wrath of God. The enmity that we had with God has been satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. And notice here, it doesn't say that you did this. Like, okay, God, I'll make up with you. No, God pursues you. God sent forth his son. God sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. God himself, while we were still enemies, brought reconciliation through the work of Christ. That's how we have peace with God. It is through the blood. It is because Jesus took the wrath of God that was poured out on him that we deserve. He is our propitiation, which means the avenging or or the appeasing of the wrath of God. He paid the penalty. He dies in our place. He takes on the suffering that we ought to suffer. Paul understood this. and If you look at Romans 3 carefully, you'll understand that Paul is saying that if God was to overlook sin if he was to brush it off, if he would make no big deal of it, he would not be just. In order for God to remain just, and he is just, he is holy, he has to punish sin. Every debt needs to be paid. Paul is precise. 
that the full fury and wrath of God the Father for our sins was placed on Jesus, and that is what reconciles us, redeems us from sin, death, and hell. That is what justifies us. And family, I'm here to tell you, and maybe you've never heard this before, what we're saved from is God's wrath against our sin. What we're saved against, and what, what God rescued us from through the person and work of Jesus Christ is his hot, fiery, righteous anger toward us because of our sin. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is love. That's true. God is love. God is love. And here's the deal. We fail to see that both God loves us and is wrathful at the same time. The reason why we can't understand that because we have limited minds. We're, we're angry people and we are not just in our anger. That's not, that's not what we're talking about when it comes to God. I've said this before. If you, if you understand anger is coupled with love, that anger is connected with love, you'll understand that God loves his creation and he's angry toward people who abuse it. He's angry towards people abusing. He loves his creation. He created us. And God sits back and watches the mess we are in, the hatred, the racism, the, 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 the ugliness of the world, and it makes him angry. It should make you angry. And it probably does. You see some stuff on TV, you're like, oh my word, that, that, if I can get my hands on that dude. Just give me five minutes. How much more for a holy God to see the sin in your own life, my life? You see, a sinful people and a holy God don't make for a warm relationship. God is holy, and because he's holy, he cannot brace sin, but must administer justice. In order for salvation to be offered and received, God's wrath must be appeased. There must be a reparation in order for a holy God to embrace a sinful people. 1 John 2. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, that's me. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let me say this. Some of you have taken philosophy in school and, and been taught about other religions. That back in the dark ages, you know, way back when cavemen and people didn't know anything. They had these gods set up and, and they would sacrifice these things and children and virgins and, and these, to placate this angry God and just to calm him down and go back into his hole and, and just be okay for the year. That's not Christianity. That is not Christianity. In the Bible, it is never we who take the initiative or make the sacrifice. It is God himself who, out of his great love for sinners, provides the way by which his wrath is appeased. He himself, and that way is through Jesus Christ, God who became man. God himself placates his own wrath against sin so that his love may go out to you and to me. I mentioned this quote before, but I love it. John Stott, if you have never read The Cross of Christ by John Stott, I highly recommend you read that book. It's a classic. John Stott, The Cross of Christ. He says this, this was already clear in the Old Testament in which the sacrifices were recognized not as human works but as a divine gift. They did not make God gracious. They were provided by a gracious God in order that we might act graciously toward his sinful, that he might act graciously toward his sinful people. I have given to you, God said, of the sacrificial blood to make atonement for yourselves on the altar, Leviticus 17. 
So Jesus pays our debt by dying a propitiatory death, satisfying the demands of God's justice, showing forth his love, living a perfect life, and absorbing the wrath we deserve because of our sins and our cosmic treason against God. He pays the penalty, he dies a propitiatory sacrifice, and all because he is our great substitute. Let me read this verse to you. It's on screen, yeah, Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs, that's Jesus, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. See the substitution there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus said, for the Son of Man come not to, not to, to, to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for on behalf of many. In Mark, the gospel according to Mark, Jesus Christ dies on the cross, breathed out his last breath, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Clearly signifying that the work of Christ is sufficient, opening the gateways into the presence of the Holy God. It is through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And now all the barriers are gone. There is no need for the priest. There is no need for the high priest. There is no need for the day of atonement. There are no need for those sacrifices that were going on for the ministry of the priest who would then sacrifice on behalf of the people. God has made a way for everyone to come through Christ alone. So to save sinners, God had to come to us and reverse our stupid methods of substituting God for false gods and did so by becoming human and dying in our place and atoning for our sins. One last quote, John Stott again, cross of Christ. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart. Yeah. To lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, idolatry. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone, end quote. That's a great quote. The concept of of substitutionary atonement is beautiful because we see that Christ dies as a penalty for our sin. He takes the wrath we deserve for our sin. We see God's justice upheld. Every sin debt is paid, and yet we see the love, the grace, the kindness, and the mercy of God. His substitution. His mediatorial role is substitution and look at the exclusivity of Christ. Today in our postmodern culture, no absolute truth. That's what everyone believes. There's not an absolute truth. And when you speak of the exclusivity of Christ, they think you're crazy. You're ignorant. You're intolerant. They say all kinds of things. Our culture promotes pluralism. All roads lead to God. Unfortunately, that's not what the scripture says. Look at the two verses here. I can go all over the Bible, but I won't. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. (coughs) This Jesus is the stone He's preaching the gospel. He says, this Jesus is the stone 
that which was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone, verse 12, and there is salvation, not maybe, there is a salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among, given among men by which you might be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to me but through the Father. You know, in a culture where truth is relative, they worship tolerance, diversity, and pluralism, we stand out marked as ones who are intolerant, narrow-minded. But the fact remains that Jesus of the Bible is, is an utterly exclusive Savior. He stands alone where no one else can be. We have insurmountable evidence in Scripture to say that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to eternal life, the only way one can be forgiven is committing intellectual suicide to many people in our culture. But the exclusivity of Christ is what makes Jesus different than every single world religion and, and leader of the world. Picking a Savior is not picking a car or a house. You don't get to choose. Scripture confirms that Jesus alone accomplished the atoning substitutionary death on the cross and that by faith in him alone, you can be saved from the wrath of God. Some may say that's intolerant. You're intolerant when you say that Jesus is the only other way. I submit to you that intolerance at some place, at some level, is a good thing. So when you, next time you fly, and you're getting on that airplane, the doors are closing, what if the, what if the ones that are in charge of the plane checking over the check, you know, the oil, whatever they do, I don't I have no idea, but I'm sure they check the plane, that the one who's checking over the thing to make sure everything is okay is intolerant of, like, mistakes. Maybe, maybe he's like, you know what, ah, don't worry about it. It hasn't been checked in a while, just, just send the plane off. You want him to be intolerant. You want him to say, no, I want every single detail checked. I'm not going to the left, and I'm not going to the right. The safety of these people matter to me. I want them to get to their destination safe, being intolerant of mistakes. That's a good thing. Believing in the exclusivity of Christ may get us labeled as crazy, narrow-minded, Intolerant, but let me say this, and I said it to the service, the first service. May it never, may we never be labeled as unloving, uncaring, serving people. It's okay, it's, it's, it, we must hold to the exclusivity, exclusivity of Christ, but may it never make us jerks and idiots and, and people who don't want to talk to anybody. Let the exclusivity of Christ propel us to love people and to care. They could say you're narrow-minded in your religious views, but boy, he really loves me and serves me and cares for me. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Christ alone died as a penal substitutionary. He alone is our Savior. He alone was sinless and lived a perfect life. He alone is the one who died and rose from the dead. He alone can make satisfaction for sin because he had never sinned. He alone took the wrath of God for our sin and paid our debt. He alone, exclusive, is the Savior of the world for those reasons and many, many more. And as true as that is, in Martin Luther's days, the exclusivity of Christ wasn't so much about his work on the cross. They believe he died for sin and rose from the dead. In Martin Luther's days, the exclusivity of Christ, and they, the church did not believe in Christ alone because they said in order to receive the grace of God, in order to receive the benefits of the cross, in order to receive the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, you need to have it through the sacramental system. So when the reformers said, no, it's Christ alone, like, no, 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 no. 
Christ, yes, he died, he rose again, but you need baptism, and you need this, and you need the Eucharist, and you need all these things, and that is the way in which it's infused in you, and then, then the benefits of the cross come to you as a person, uh, uh, real to you, and, and uh, beneficial to you. So to the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't sufficient. It was necessary, but not sufficient. And let me read to you, uh, before we close, let me, let me, I have this quote. Let's see if I can find Oh, yeah, I can. So a Roman Catholic priest in the 13th century, his name was Thomas Aquinas, kind of sums up their sacrificial system. He says this. This is what he held. Uh, here it is. He held that a human cooperation with the work of Christ is necessary. Faith, love, and the participation of the sacraments unite people to the atonement of Christ and become necessary, a necessary part of it. You see what he's saying? In this way, the exclusivity of Christ's person is affirmed, but the sufficiency of Christ's work is compromised. That's what they held to. But the reformers said, no, it is Christ alone. Christ alone entails the confession of Christ's exclusivity, identity, and his perfect, complete, and sufficient work as the one and only mediator. Nothing we can add. So let's end this way. Two things I want to share with you. Number one, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here today, let your heart explode with gratitude and thanksgiving. As the band plays, we're going to sing in Christ alone, and we're going to be saying yes in Christ alone. I am not saving myself. I justify not myself. It is by faith alone in Christ alone, and let's worship our God. But maybe you're here today, and the exclusivity of Christ to you is like, you know, I got my foot in the world, and I got my foot on Christ. And when we say exclusivity of Christ, we mean giving yourself completely to him. Maybe you have not done that yet. Maybe, maybe it's just holding on to the things and the exclusivity of Christ saying, no, Christ alone. Put your hope and your trust and your faith in Christ alone. The band's gonna play, we're gonna have communion. The body and blood of Jesus, the bread representing his body, the blood, the cup representing his blood that was shed for you. It is not his real body, it's not his real blood, but although Christ is in heaven, his spirit is here and he's calling us through his spirit to join him at this table and to celebrate the forgiveness of our sins. So if you're a Christian, you're welcome at this table. Confess your sins, repent of your sin, and come, take the cup, take the bread, and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never trusted him, now's the time. As the band leads us, we're gonna sing, and let's worship together. Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you, the willing sacrifice that you have given up yourself on the cross, dying to pay the penalty of our debt, dying as a substitute for sinners, dying as a propitiatory sacrifice of bearing the wrath we deserve. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. And as we take of the cup, as we take of the bread, come, strengthen our faith. Help us to trust in you completely and solely. In solas Christus we pray. Amen.